Hello and welcome to episode 36 of Double Reel, the monthly podcast magazine for the discerning film nerd. It's April 2023, spring is here, and thoughts turn to the arrival of warm weather when we can go and swim in our shit-filled rivers and seas. We're here to get you through the month with a big helping of cinematic content for your waiting ears. My name's James Adamson, and I'm a film nerd with a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema, and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for that introduction. It's good to be back. We aim to provide you with the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. We divide each monthly issue into three parts, which we release a week at a time to keep your feed fed through the month. This is the first part of the episode, Double Real Monthly. We'll look at recent film news, what new releases are heading our way, and review any new films we've seen since the last episode. We'll also discuss how we're getting on with the film-related resolutions we made for 2023. Next week we'll deliver our regular features, Classics and Recommended, Hidden Gem, The One That Got Away, and the remake, Hate Watch. The following week it'll be the big conversation, where we'll talk about a topic from the world of film in more detail. We'll tell you a bit more about that a bit later, and there are more details about all of our features on our various social media channels. If you want to check that out or comment on the podcast, you can find us on Twitter on at Double Real Film. There's also an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can also follow us on letterbox.com slash double reel, where we list all the films we've discussed on the podcast and much more besides. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you use, as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world. Now it's time to dim the lights and take your seats for our latest Double Reel Monthly. Hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Double Reel Monthly is the first part of the episode and gives you a regular digest of news, new releases and how we've been fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. This replaces our monthly roundup from previous episodes and the content is fairly familiar. In the next hour, you'll get a breakdown of what's going on in the world of film this month that will set you up for your own movie watching. As well as that, at the start of each year, we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set for ourselves in 2023. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience. Also, just to quickly mention our other podcasts, which you might like to check out. The Adamson's Versus is where we step away from the world of film and talk about stories, news, and anything else that's caught our attention. Our most recent episode, The Adamson's Versus the BBC, is out now. With that piece of self-promotion out of the way, let's quickly look at some messages we've been sent. I'll save the ones for the features and big conversation for those episodes. Tony Friend of the Pod said, I enjoyed the Oscar chat. I must be missing something with Avatar, although I did watch it at home, not on the big screen. Thought it was just like a very, very, very long and boring video game cutscene. Only thing notable about it was that it managed to look both green screened and CGI at the same time. We were discussing John Wick Chapter 4 later this episode, and Sophia says, incredibly slick and enjoyable, and the action is like Looney Tunes with beautiful exotic locations as the backdrop. Too long, though. What the fuck? Rona says the dog should get his own film. He absolutely should. <laughs> we'll also be talking about the film Bandit later, and Mark says, I love this film, and Josh Dumel is a revelation. So, um, let's go. Uh, I assume you're all ready, and the dogs are lined up listening, as, as always, for us to get into the podcast, mate. Um, they couldn't give less of a shit, they're fast asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, the theme this month is that all the films in our features that are sort of coming in the second part uh, were released in the UK in the year I turned 30, uh, and are now approaching their 20th anniversary. Uh, keen mathematicians amongst you 
will will have worked out that that means I've got a big birthday coming up. I just thought it'd be a good time to kind of look back on some films from that period and see how they aged. It's an interesting companion theme, I thought, to the one we did about when you turned 18, mate. Um, but it's, yeah, it's about 2003 in film. Uh, du- the W monthly won't, won't cover that, but it, uh, I mean, w- what are your thoughts about 2003 as a, as a year? I mean, you were quite young then, so it's probably, you're looking back on it in, in retrospect a bit, aren't you? Yeah, I don't think it was a a year for films for people my age. Do you get what I mean? Like, yeah. I think it was kind of just after Toy Story uh, two and Monsters Inc. and just before The Incredibles, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Bit so, of, bit of a lull, yeah. Yeah. So, not, well, it was. I mean, there's some decent films there, of course. Um, but yeah, it was a bit of a year, probably not for for a seven year old, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, probably not. Okay, so the first thing we cover in Double Road Monthly is the news. Um, what news headlines over the past sort of few weeks have, have caught your eye, mate? Well, there's one that really fucked me off. Do you see the Daily Mail have been cunts again? Uh, I'm not surprised, but tell me more. So, they took a photo of Jack Nicholson standing on his balcony. Yeah, oh, said, yeah. Do you see this? And they said Jack Nicholson spotted for the first time in RYO, because he's, he's, he's basically retired from films now, um, looking... I don't know what the wording of it was, but it was basically... Not very flattering. He's he's eighty five and he's put on a bit of weight because he's allowed to because he's eighty five and he's a fucking legend. Um, but yeah, it was just it was just shitty. I mean, I'm not expecting good journalism from the Daily Mail, but it was like the guy's been out of the game for what thirteen years now, 10, 13 years, and it's you know it was just it was just nasty. Jack Nicholson is allowed to get fat. And just stand on his balcony yeah. and enjoy Ooh. some peace and quiet. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of a strange one, that. It's, uh, yeah, like you say, what are people expecting? They also look like they've caught him, like, first thing in the morning, like he's just getting up and looking out the window. Yeah. And he, he looks like a bloke who's just got up. That is literally what he looks like. And if they took that photo 10, 20 years ago, he doesn't actually look that different, you know, really, it's like The Departed was 2006. It doesn't look like he's completely declined or anything. He no. looks like he's just got up. And if they took that photograph 20 years ago, they're going, oh, Jack Nicholson must have had a big night last night. But instead, their spin is, oh, look at the state of Jack Nicholson. It's, yeah, it's shitty, isn't it? Yeah, I, was, I wasn't a fan. Yeah. Um, yeah, so very on brand for the Daily Mail. Um, <laughs> this, this happened a couple of weeks ago and then went a bit quiet. Um, Jonathan Majors was arrested. Did you see that story? Yes, I did because I think we just filmed, not filmed, but just recorded the last podcast. Yeah, it came out on the heels, uh, yeah. And he came out. There was, I think Creed 3 had just come out as well. Um, it was sort of getting into the swing in the cinemas and he it kind of distracted from the film. It, it's yeah. I mean, it could could not be worse timed, uh, you know, for him. Although obviously, if these allegations are true, that's the least of anyone's concerns. Yeah, it's, um, you know, but he's just become the big bad in Marvel, um, and he's just done this uh, uh, Creed, you know, Creed three, and and made a big impact. And there was there was talk of a of a TV series based on his character in Creed three, following on like a spin off, mm. um, but it's. Uh, yeah, I mean the fallout so far is that he's, you know, he's been dropped by his management. He's no longer starring in in, in a couple of films and, and ad campaigns that he was going to be in, um, with the the usual uh, caveat that he denies all charges and has uh, he's been arrested. And you know what 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 exactly happened is yet to be established in a court of law. Um, so if he hasn't done anything wrong, it's a pretty horrible way to treat him. 
um, but we're not going to know if he has if he has done you know what what he's been accused of. It is uh, going to be absolutely you know curtains for him. So it, there you go. It is. I'm very much a. I don't know what the right word is, but a supporter of innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. But it doesn't look good. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it doesn't look very good from the reports that we've read. Um, yeah, he's a bit in the mud there, but... It's, yeah, the, well, it's, the, it. it's the same ethical concern every time when it happens to a celebrity. On the one hand, you go, well, how do you? How can you have innocent until proven guilty when their name gets kind of called out and, 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 and the, you get this, this snowball effect? But yeah. the flip side to that, everything we've learned about Hollywood over the past kind of 30, 40 years is that unless people speak out and unless it gets the, you know, the light of publicity, sometimes nothing gets done. So it's just, you know, we're, you know, tough shit. You're going to have to get dragged through it. And, you know, he, he'll try and clear his name. His accusers will, will aim to get what they believe is justice for themselves. It's another kind of, for, for us as sort of regular people, it's just a bit depressing, isn't it? That, yet, you know, there's been yet another case of this shit come out. Yeah. Um, that's very sad. Um, what else caught your eye? Um, I feel like I'm missing something. Am I, am I, am I missing something glaringly obvious that you um, have a, seen? A, a couple I think you were taking interest in. Tarantino announced what the title of his next film was going to be and sort of said what it was going to be about. Oh, fuck yeah. What is it about again? It's called, at the moment, now take this with a pinch of salt because Tarantino was up there with Nolan for keeping people, you know, guessing with what his films are going to be about. Uh, he says it's going to be called The Movie Critic and it is literally going to be about a movie critic. Oh. Um, oh. And the thing is, you can't take anything from that. One is that Tarantino was a big fan of the, the, the movie writer Pauline Kael. So people are now speculating like crazy that it might be about her. Um, the thing is, it's going to be a Tarantino film, isn't it? it, it you know, what, it, It's like when he said... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is going to be about the the Charles Manson murders of, of Sharon Tate. It ended up being, in the end, not not really what people were expecting. But obviously, there's a lot of interest surrounding the fact that he's that he's announced his next film. So, and also this the speculation is that he is going to um, make good on his claim that this is going to be his last film because this will no, be his tenth film. So, but but yeah, but but that's discussion. The discussion is what's his next film going to be about, and everyone's kind of throwing sorts of suggestions around. There was an interesting case where Pauline Kael, as a movie critic, was invited to work on the movie production side, I think by Warren Beatty. Um, and she got a very interesting insight into what a long and frustrating process this is to get a film made. Um, whether that's what this film is about or whether it's something else or whether it's some kind of alternative history fantasia, which is something he's been doing a lot of recently. Who knows? But obviously he's got people talking as he would. I mean, he's, you know, a Tarantino film is always a big event. The other one that I thought you would probably take an interest in is that they've announced they're going to be making three more Star Wars films. Fuck off. I missed that and I'm kind of upset that I didn't get to continue under the guys that they weren't making anymore. Um, why, why are they doing that? Is it like... Star Wars, Skywalker Saga, is it like the Taika Waititi one and all that kind of thing? Is this separate? This is... So, Lucasfilm has announced three new live-action films and confirmed the room of, uh, the return of Daisy Ridley as Rey. <laughs> I don't know if Chewbacca's going to be in it. Um, <laughs> um, building a new Jedi Order, it is... I mean, look, I've got nothing against Daisy Ridley. I don't think she was all that good, but I think we've seen with people like Kira Knightley that, you know, in, in Pirates of the Caribbean, they're often better than their material. Um, the 
it just feels really fucking stale that they're going to do this again and again and again. The, the the last the last three films were such a retread, and it's like there are so many stories out there in the extended sort of Star Wars universe. It really would be time to do something new. So it's like yeah, whatever. But it's going to be. Um, say there were going to be. Um, I heard something about James Gunn being involved somewhere, but I might have Holmes. got that wrong. No, James Mangold. Sorry, James Mangold. Um, see, I like James Mangold, but how he does in franchises, we'll have to wait and see what, what his Indiana Jones film looks like. If he manages to make that less shit than I'm expecting, then maybe he's a guy who can do something good with Star Wars. But I just feel like the director and the stars and everything else are irrelevant, really, with Disney, like, they just keep churning out you know, a production line, and that that does not yield quality. Um, so I remain sceptical. When you think about it, there's been there'll be twelve Star Wars films, and it looks like six of them are going to have Ray Ray in them. Yeah, and I think they just need to let the Mandalorian fix everything. I think they need to have stuff where they tr- maybe try and get Kylo Ren into the Mandalorian, and they have Grogu going back to yeah. train with Luke or whatever. They have that kind of thing, or like the the Mandalorians are present when Kylo Ren destroys the jet like that kind of thing just let the mandalorian fix everything seven eight and nine were shit because that's what that's what they're going to keep doing because the people hated the prequels and they thought oh what if we have like another three films to maybe like try and revive the franchise and then they were shit and it's just going to go on and on and on and on and on on. like police academy there's just going to be fucking loads of them but this time it's trying to fix all the problems that they already had well i mean yeah look whether whether went wrong with star wars was that they basically made Episode seven, just a retread of New Hope, which gave the trilogy nowhere to go. They made more wrong decisions after that, but it's but fundamentally they've got. I mean, what one suggestion was that it should have done Heir to the Empire. Um, the only problem with that is that it's set like five years after the events of Return of the Jedi. So if you're reviving the series thirty years later, you can't do that. But th- there's there's a whole saga of stories out there in the extended universe where you could do other more interesting stories. They're like there are like three hundred and eighty one books uh, and media and graphic novels and various other things in the Star Wars extended universe, and people have read them, responded to them. You like continued the story of you know one one trilogy of stories comes out and they continue it. There's a proving ground there. You go like, like when like when Nolan went back to cherry picked his favorite Batman storylines for his trilogy. There's loads and loads of material out there to make a good new story, and they just you know and that that's fundamentally the issue is that that Disney plays it so safe by saying let's just give them more of exactly what's gone before on, on an annual basis, and the quality is never going to be good enough when they do that. It's just this is why it's as shit as it is. So that's life. I don't think they're going to be very good. Um, uh, now, there is one news story here, which this is me kind of trying to, you know, when on the old days on BBC News, when they used to kind of, on and ITV, they used to try and finish on an inspiring sort of happy story. Um, I thought I'd throw this out because it is about a film. Um, a, a new film about a Muslim woman um, from the southern Indian state of Kerala who raised three Hindu children has brought attention to the family's unusual story. Um, it's I'm not quite sure if it's... It might be a documentary, in fact, or it might be a, a drama, but basically it's about the true story of a Muslim woman who was friends with a Hindu woman. Um, uh, this is about 40 years ago, or 40 or more, um, and she died while giving birth to a fourth child who also died, leaving a, a children with three orphans. The husband didn't want anything to do with them or, or wasn't in the picture anymore. Um, and the, the her friend, a Muslim woman, uh, took the children in and raised them. 
Um, <clears throat> because of the way Muslims are treated in India, um, she couldn't legally adopt the children, so she just took care of them, um, didn't try and convert them, kept them as, as, as you know, you know, raised them in, in, in Hindu and you know, practiced her own religion, but but took her kids to temples so they didn't lose sight of their own culture, and um, you know, brought them up and they've now gone on to achieve things. And I think the woman who did that kind of recently died. And it's a, it's an inspiring story of, of, of someone who had absolutely no, uh, you know, uh, no real status in life, just, just saving three kids lives basically. And it's coming out as a, as, as a film, I think they're looking for funding for distribution and uh, whatever tiny audience we have, I, I just wanted to bring that out from, because I think it's a really inspiring story. And it's, you know, it's about a real person who just, his heart was big enough for three more people uh, to be in it. And I think it's really special and, and worth mentioning. And I, I think the film is called, um, I'm trying to find the title of the film, because, you know, these, these um, yeah, it's called uh, Yours Truly, Street Haram, it's called. And I think it, 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 hopefully it gets shown. It's not getting much support in India because of all the Hindu nationalism over there but I, I just wanted to mention that because I think it's a really good story about a really kind person um, whose, whose story deserves to be told so you put that very nicely there I don't think you. I could have added to that oh, yep yeah, just trying to just uh, that that's my end finally um, any more news uh, that you wanted to pick out uh, has anyone died or been arrested I haven't actually noticed it's been a bit of a quiet month for that I do apologise to anyone kind of uh, it, it, who has died recently, um, who, who deserves a mention, but I, I haven't seen anything. I mean, it's not your fucking fault, but... Um, no, I haven't seen anyone. Um, yeah, the last big one was Lance Reddick, who we talked about on the last episode. Yeah. I suppose that's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't like to lose beloved, uh, beloved stars. Um... Okay, well, that, that's the news. The next thing we tend to talk about is uh, new releases. Um, as we said, I think, on the last episode, rather than just read out a long list, uh, you, you can read the list of new releases on IMDb and other places if you want. We just sort of picked out... I've just picked out a few that interest me. Are there any new releases that uh, that interest you? Um, well, I don't think I should be interested in it, but that Mario movie is making a fuckload of money, isn't it? Yeah, it's. I saw the trailer for it, and I think the reason it's doing as well as it is is because, notwithstanding some complaints about the voice cast that they've used, they've recreated the look and feel of the of the Mario world, which is what people like about Mario in the first place. And there's a lot of people who were fans of Mario back in the day who said, "Well, that look, you know, I, I remember liking that visual world. I will watch a movie that's got that visual world." And obviously, it's. Um, the first half of the year or the first couple of months here can be a little bit quiet for kids' films anyway, and, and kids seem to be getting into it as well because it's bright and it's fun and it's exciting. So it's it's it seems to have absolutely hit the jackpot there. Any other films that you've wanted to... Yeah, there's a, there's a couple I picked out. I talked previously about there being a new set of um, Three Musketeers films coming out. They're doing it in two parts. The way they did the 1970s Three Musketeers first half and second half of the original story. They've done that again. 
except it's a, it's a French production. And it's the first really big French production in, in, in decades of The Three Musketeers. And it's got Eva Green as, as Milady, one of the main villains, and Vincent Cassell as one of the Musketeers. And it's called The Three Musketeers d'Artagnan. It, it, it got its release date at very late notice, so we didn't mention it last month. It's actually coming out the 21st of April, so by the time this gets released to our audience, it will already be out. But that's out, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and later in the year, the second half of The Three Musketeers, Milady will be out. And I'm I, I'm really hoping these are going to be good because, you know, seeing the French do one of their stories, do you know what I mean? It's like it's like the British doing Ivanhoe or something. It's one of the great swash, swashbuckling stories in their culture. I'd like to see the French have a proper go at it and hope that's good. Um, April 28th, there is a film coming out called Big George Foreman, The Miraculous Story of the Once and Future Heavyweight Champion of the World. Um, so it's a biopic of George Foreman, which is interesting because a lot of the boxing biopic has been about other sort of characters like Ali. Um, so it's very interesting to see things from the perspective of the other guy in the Rumble in the Jungle. Um, and he's a very engaging person, George Foreman, so that would be nice to see. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is out on May the 5th. Have you seen any trailers for this? I haven't, actually, but I'm excited for it because I want to see what James Gunn's doing. Yeah, I mean, Jane... <laughs> The, the problem for anything in Marvel now is that because there's been quite a few shit films, there's always a lot riding on the next one, and everyone's like, God, I hope this is good. And we, I think the, the Guardians of the Galaxy have been so popular, everyone's really hoping that this one's good. The trailer, I was slightly surprised by the tone of the trailer, because it had the, the trailer because yeah. the music and the tone was very kind of... It was playing on the heavy emotional stuff, the, oh, what happens if somebody dies? We've got to, you know, we've got to rescue each other kind of thing. And you do hope that they've retained the kind of humour of the of the story as well you know but i just i just hope it's good while i am you know a little bit superheroed out the guardians are always a lot of fun and i you know it, it's not fair to ask this film to be the one that saves marvel i just hope it's good because the last two guardians films are really good so fingers crossed and the, the other sort of big name not that i'm massively interested in this but it is a big um it is a big film literally um, May the 19th, uh, the 10th Fast and Furious film comes out. Fast oh, X. for fuck's sake. Now, I'm not super interested in this. I caught Fast 9 lately, and, and it was, wasn't, you know, it's ridiculous. They put a car in space. Fuck off. Family. But I thought what was interesting is this latest Fast X has got a budget of $340 million. Holy fuck. Do you know what slightly surprised me is that how close to that do you think that is to the most expensive film ever made? Is it like not even close? Did they spend like four hundred million on Avatar two or Avengers or something like it, that? It's the seventh most expensive film ever made. <clears throat> I just thought it was really interesting. There's something that sounds mental, but it is only the seventh most expensive film ever made. And I thought, well, what's the top six then? What are the six films more expensive than that? And I've, I've got them here. Uh, number six, Avatar: The Way of Water, three hundred and fifty million. Jeez. Oh. I kind of, I kind of get that because I know Cameron spends a lot of money, and and, make, and you know it's the only film where work these days where the CGI is never shonky. Um, Avengers Endgame was three hundred and fifty six million. Jesus. In fifth, in fourth, and this is where you start to see. I'm not sure where the money went on these films. Avengers: Age of Ultron was three hundred and sixty five million. So Jesus Age of Ultron Christ. was more expensive than Endgame. Um, third most expensive, and this is really genuinely mind blowing. Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. Is that not like the fifth one? No, no the fourth one. No, that's the third. That's the third most expensive film I've made on. Three. No, I mean in the in the series. It's yeah, the sorry, fourth yeah, fourth, fourth, one. fourth yeah, yeah. in the series. It's just one they they, they dropped, they chucked out. Three hundred and seventy nine million. It's the one with Penelope Cruz in. It's. Just, I've no idea where the money went on that. I've no idea how that cost as much as it did. Um, and here's where it gets gets really sorry. 
Second most expensive film ever made, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. 400, uh, $416 million. Uh, And the most expensive film, and again, I really don't no. know why they managed to make it cost this much. Star Wars The Force Awakens cost £447 million pounds to make. What the fuck? I mean, I, I, I've got to be honest, right? I know they spend a lot of money on these things, right? But you know what Star Wars Force Awakens has got? It's got a desert planet. It's got the Millennium Falcon. It's got a Death Star. And it's got a, a fucking lightsaber fight and some explosions. How has it cost that much? I know films cost more than that, but the first Star Wars film had all that, and it cost fucking $8 million, or $12 million, I think, once he like, took off the tax breaks. It's fucking ridiculous. <sighs> However... What I will say is that those films don't look as shit as the kind of CGI sci-fi fancy films that are coming out now. So maybe they maybe they were somewhat right to spend that kind of money. Maybe, because yeah, the one thing you wouldn't say about Rise of Skywalker and Force Awakens is that the CGI was shonky. So no, maybe, maybe that's good. what maybe that's what CGI costs these days. Which maybe that's why you should do what Nolan does and and use CGI much more sparingly. You know, and pay the CGI animators what the money worth. that they're worth. Yeah, yeah exactly. Fucking, fucking right. Yeah, fuck so, Rupert Murdoch. Yeah, yeah. So those are the um, th- yeah, th- those are the new films coming out. There are others, um, but those are the ones that we thought were more notable. And obviously, maybe we'll be watching some of those. I will probably try and get out to watch Guardians of the Galaxy. And you know, I would like to see if that if that Three Musketeers is out near me. I I, I do want to go and see that. Um, so uh, any other films catch your eye? No, I I thought Guardians of the Galaxy wasn't coming out for ages. Yeah, um, they they do sometimes sort of give you your release date at relatively short notice, and it could be that they went actually may, maybe they've watched it and it's good, and they thought because Quantumania didn't do very well, they thought well let's get Guardians of the Galaxy out to just try and you know well you know when a football manager brings on to, brings on a sub earlier than planned, um, I think that might be what they do, or maybe it's just they're ready so they're putting it out. I don't know. I might be reading too much into it. Um, okay, so that's the. The news and new releases uh, are done. The other thing that we do uh, is that we just started doing, and we enjoyed it so much last time we're doing it again, is the penalty shootout quiz. Um, if you listened last time, you'll know that what we did was uh, it is in the format of a penalty shootout from football, but it's about film questions. Uh, each person has to answer five questions, uh, you know, in, in format one, you know, one after the other. Uh, the loser, after five questions, has to do a forfeit in the form of watching a film chosen by the winner, um, which we a film they're expected to hate. If we both do especially poorly in the shootout, we have to watch our respective forfeit films. We both have to. Um, and uh, if it's a draw, then we just hold over, we roll over the, the forfeits for next time. Um, are we still going to do the same forfeits as last time? Uh, yes. Oh, I mean, I don't mind. I think it spoils it now because I, to- I think I told you what I was going to make you watch. Yeah, well, well, we, we, you know, we took, we knew what we were going to watch last time. So let's let's mention to him again. I think that the stakes are still quite high. Uh, James, should we, should we tell them what happened last time? I think we got four out of five each, and then yeah. didn't get the tiebreaker question. So I think we just agreed that it was a quite a decent showing. So nobody yeah. had to, yeah, nobody had to watch a bad film. Yeah. So the 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 forfeits have rolled over from last time. Um, now, you have selected for me Baz Luhrmann's Australia. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> hell. And uh, if James loses, I'm going to make him watch Wes Anderson's The Life Aquatic with Steve Sissy. Uh, and we just remember, audience, we are father and son. We love each other very much. So I have no idea why we're being so cruel to each other. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but here we go. I've got my five questions ready. Have you got your five? I've ready? got five and a potential tiebreaker. 
Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, um, I came prepared. All oh, right. Um, okay. Well, I don't have a tiebreaker. So. Sorry, we'll get we'll get to that. If we get to that, you can yeah, quickly we'll, find we'll, one. We'll cross that bridge. Okay. Um, do you want to go first or second? Don't mind. Who went first last time? Can you remember? No, I can't. All right, I'll go first then. All right. Okay, your question one. Which of the following Jessica Chastain films was not based on a true story? Molly's Game, Lawless, or Miss Sloan? Miss Sloan? Correct. Oh, I wasn't sure if Molly's Game was true or not. That's right, yeah. Molly's Game is based on the autobiography of a woman who did poker games for celebrities uh, and it was illegal gambling and she got kind of caught up in stuff and Lawless is genuinely based on that real um, uh, Prohibition era family, right? But Miss Sloan was, you know, fictional but based, you know, inspired by, you know, genuine issues. Um, Okay, that's your one. You've scored one. So, your question. There are three directors to have won three or more Best Director Oscars. Can you name two of them, please? Two directors who've won three or more Best Director Oscars. Yep. Not nominations, wins, because there's... Three, three wins. Um, at least three, because there's, um, there's a director that's won four, and then two that have won three, and then there's a bunch that have won two. So I thought it'd be a bit of a... Bit of a tight question to oh, make. That is it. a tight question. Bloody hell! Um, I think you'll you'll know all three of them. I will know all three of them, and I'll kick myself a little bit. I'm just thinking. I don't thinking going back to name some older ones, possibly. Um, <laughs> is Francis Ford Coppola one of them? Do you want to? <laughs> Sorry, the dogs are raging that you've said Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> Right, I tell you what, I'll give you three guesses, because it's it's only right that I give you three guesses. Um, okay. So Francis Ford Coppola isn't one of them, you've got two more guesses. Okay. And I need to name two of them, right? Yeah, you need, and I would think about the films that they would have won for. Because Fra- what do you think Francis Ford Coppola's won three best directors for? Yeah, I thought maybe he'd won for Apocalypse Now as well, but that's probably not right, is it? Um... I'm pretty sure Spielberg's only won two, so it's not him. Is John Ford one of them? John Ford is one of them, and he won four. Wow. Okay. <laughs> it's spicing wow. up. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, let me see. Who else has won a bunch of... of... Tell you what, they're, they're back in the day ones. Yeah. I'll give you. I'll give you a little bit of a clue. So, the the ones that have won two are quite recent directors. So there's Ang Lee, Alfonso Cuaron, Clint Eastwood, Alejandro Gonzalez, and Aritu. Yeah. So the more modern ones have won two. The ones that have won three are back in the day kind of guys. Let's try this. Um, okay, I'm just going to throw an absolute random one. William Wyler. Yes. <laughs> Hell. Oh. And the other one was Frank Capra. Frank Capra, fucking hell. Wow. But when I was do- doing the kind of research on this question, I think Martin Scorsese had about eight or nine. It yeah. was crazy. Okay. 
So if I've uh, okay, so if I've if I've done one here, which is an absolute bugger, I may um, I, you, you were a little bit kind to me on that one, mate. So we'll uh, I'll, I'll I'll try and return the favour if I've done one, which is no, that's fine. Okay. The questions I've got are multiple choice as well because okay. I don't want them to be two. Yeah. Okay, so for your question, that's one each, isn't it? So for your question yes. two, which of these films was Steven Spielberg not nominated for a Best Director Oscar? So it's not it's not about winning; it's only about his nominations. Mm-hmm. Um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Saving Private Ryan or The Colour Purple? Now, why do I... I feel like Raiders didn't get that kind of Oscar buzz. I feel like Colour Purple did get loads of buzz, but maybe... um, Did The Colour Purple only get like nominations for acting? Did they not remake that recently? Not that I'm aware of. Nor are they remaking it, I don't know. I'll be very surprised if Steven Spielberg didn't get nominated for Saving Private Ryan because it won Best... Did it not win Best Picture? Hmm... Saving Private Ryan, he definitely got nominated for. I'm ruling that one out. Color Purple or Raiders of the Lost Ark? Now, I don't think the color... Is the Color Purple not one of those ones that, like... I think it got a record amount of nominations and didn't win. Whereas Raiders... Raiders must have won a few. And by that, I'm going to say if it won a few, I'm thinking that if it's winning a few, Steven Spielberg got a nomination, so I'm going to go for the Color Purple. The correct answer is the Color Purple. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, it's before your time, but the color purple was a bit of a famous snub for um, for Spielberg because it was nominated for eleven Oscars, but not for best director. And, and am I right thinking it's the film that got the most nominations and didn't win? That's right. Yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, it was it was a bit of a rebuke to Spielberg for not and for not kind of doing the films people expected him to do back then. And Raiders of the Lost Ark did get a best director nomination, uh, slightly surprisingly, given that. Films like that tended not to be given Oscar credit back then. I mean, if Rose of the Lost Ark came out now, I don't think people would be surprised that it got nominations for Best Picture or Best Director. But back back then, it was a bit of a a bit of an outlier. But yeah, um, well done, mate. You, you picked that one up. Right. Next one. Who actually drew the sketch of Rose in Titanic? Was it A. Leonardo DiCaprio, B. Billy Zane, C. James Cameron? Or D, Kathy Bates? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, so this is an interesting one because I get the feeling that it wasn't Leonardo DiCaprio. And I don't know this anecdote, but Billy Zane or Kathy Bates doing it, it could be one of those ones where Billy Zane goes, oh, I used to draw at school, so I reckon I could do this. Or <laughs> I've seen Kate Winslet naked, I reckon I could draw it. Um, but hmm. I've got a feeling, right, because... Because um, James Cameron was he did special effects and stuff and art direction and set stuff set design before he was a director, and and directors are often quite good at drawing storyboards and things. So I am going to kick myself if this is wrong, but say James Cameron. You would be correct. Oh, I think that was quite a good process of elimination there because it wouldn't be Leonardo DiCaprio, would it? Like, let's... Otherwise, otherwise, it's not a story, right? And then Billy Zane, Kathy Bates, they've never had to draw up a storyboard, have they? No. So, yeah, yeah. that was... Okay. It sounds like a tough question, that, but... Okay. 
Okay, number three. Your number three. What was the name of Javier Bardem's character in No Country for Old Men? Oh, bastard. It's something. It's like the tip of your tongue, isn't it? Uh, what is it? 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 It's like it doesn't even say like a proper Spanish name. It's it's like something Russian. Oh no! What is it? He plays Silver and Skyfall. He plays that Oxbal Uchbal in Beautiful. Fuck is his name? I don't think it's a Spanish name. It is. I think it starts with an A. It does. So I'm gonna. I mean, because you were a bit sort of helpful, it does. I'm gonna go with. Is it something like Anton Sugar? That is correct. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well done, oh, mate. You really dug, some... you dug that out. Well, yeah, I was in, I was in my cerebral cortex there, by the way. You were in your Sherlock Holmes mind palace. Okay, we've really upped the stakes on this oh, one. Fuck <laughs> me. Right. Next question. Which country does Forrest Gump travel to as part of the All-American Ping Pong Team? Is it A, France, B, Sweden, C, China, or D, Vietnam? Okay, so I can't. This is one of the bits of Forrest Gump that I didn't concentrate very closely on when I watched it. Um, so the way I'm going to do this is just my best guess is that I don't think he goes back to Vietnam in that time frame because I don't think people were going back to Vietnam uh, at that time, whereas you can now. And for the ping pong stuff, because China is sort of more known than those other countries for the. The ping pong, I'm going to say China. Yep, you would be correct. <sighs> well, we've only done three each. Wow. Okay, right, so three each. We're hard questions, but, 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 but answering well. Okay, number four. What are the first names of the film directing Russo brothers? Joe and Anthony. Ah, that was too easy, obviously. That was too easy. <laughs> okay, that's four. All right. What's my fourth? True or false? Sean Connery wore a toupee in every James Bond movie he was in. Now, I know he wore a toupee later on. I didn't think he wore a toupee at the beginning. So I'm going to say false. Nope, it's true. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> Got one wrong. Okay, so that's 4-3 to you, yeah? Yes, if I get this right. It's game over when you're watching yeah. Australia. <laughs> okay. Your question five. How many times has Ryan Reynolds played Deadpool in a full-length feature film? Note here that we are not counting Once Upon a Deadpool, which is a spoofed, toned-down retelling of the first Deadpool film and style of The Princess Bride. So other than that, how many times has he played Deadpool in a full-length feature film? So Deadpool 1 and 2 and X-Men Origins... So that would be three. But does that count? Because X-Men Oranges was shit. Oh. I feel like this is a trick question because he's actually played Deadpool's Deadpool in one and two, but they made an absolute arse of the fucking Deadpool character in X-Men Origins. 
Am I missing one? I'm going to go for three. Correct. Oh, that, that is a cheeky question because that, that X-Men Origins one shouldn't count. Yeah, it gives you doubt in your mind, doesn't it? But he is he is technically, he, he's playing Wade Wilson and he has the powers, of so he is, he is Deadpool. So my last question would have been, who took home an Oscar for Best, best Actor in 1998? Was it A, Tom Hanks, B, Sean Penn, C, Jack Nicholson, or D, Denzel Washington. I think that was Jack Nicholson. It was, yes. Yeah. But you've already won, so there's no, I don't get to take the final penalty. Australia it is. Oof. Okay, so James wins the penalty shootout quiz. I will be watching Australia. God damn it. Uh, <laughs> I honestly don't mind if you turn that off after half an hour. Because <laughs> that, that's two hours and 40 minutes of just hell. Oh my God. Okay. All right. I'll be, I'll be discussing that. Okay. All right, well played, mate. That was that was a tough one. I'll have to remember next time to, to have a tie-break question. Just in case. Yeah, yeah, just in case. All right, but we didn't need it this time. So now we move to what new films we watched uh, in the last month since we recorded. Uh, what, what new films have you caught up with lately? Quite a few, actually. Um, I watched Avatar 2. Um, I had uh, a little voucher to use, so I, I got it on Prime, like yeah. rented it. No, I think I bought it, actually. I thought it was really, really good. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Um, very similar to Avatar 1, I thought a lot of the acting was a bit weaker because it wasn't as much focused on Sam Worthington and Zoe Zaldana. It was very much focused on the kids. I didn't like that as much. Yeah. Um, I thought it was still fun. I thought it was a really good story, and I'm excited to see what they do in the third one. But I do think they need to kind of go away from the cast from the first film. Well, yeah. not, maybe not the cast, like the two main characters of Natiri and Jake, but they need to get a different villain. If you get what I'm saying for the third one, and I would like to see maybe in the fourth one and the fifth one, he's in this one. He basically has to stop being the leader of the. Uh, this is the A2 can the yeah. the people that live in the forest. He has to give that up because he's being hunted. Yeah, I would like the f- third or fourth film for him trying to claim that back. Yeah, instead of just the same spoiler alert, the bad guy in Avatar two and three is going to be the bad guy from Avatar one. But that's that's basically it. yeah, the yeah. And the problem with that is that there's kind of no stakes because if you if you kill him and you know they can just fit him back into another Avatar sleeve, it's like well, it it doesn't matter if you kill him. Yeah. Um, this is the problem you've got with you know reincarnation and and uh, you know a multiverse kind of stuff. If you don't if you don't have an ability to if there's you know there's no stakes on a character, you sort of lose interest, right? Yeah. yeah fair um, enough. Well, glad you liked it. What else? I caught. Um, I watched Deadpool. Oh, it's funny enough that was one of the questions. I watched Deadpool one and two over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, still brilliant as ever. Um, tried to watch Guardians of the Galaxy two. I really didn't like that. Didn't get on board with it. I thought it was just an unnecessary film. I watched Avatar 1 in preparation for watching Avatar 2. Um, let me see if I can... I'm just. I'm on my Disney Plus now, the Netflix. Yeah. What else did I watch? Got quite a few films. I started watching the John Adams series, which is very good. Yeah. Um, I know it's not a film, but it's got some incredible talent in it. Yeah. I think that, that might be... I'm just going to double check my prime video but yeah I tried to I was excited to see Avatar 2 and I, I don't feel like I was let down by it I thought it's unbelievable CGI 
Like it's, yeah. it's just different gravy. Like James Cameron just knows how to make. Like I know people are saying, "Oh, why is he taking this long to like get this film out?" But it is. It's just different class. It is just absurd how beautiful that film is. It's, yeah. I don't. I don't remember a single part of it thinking, "Oh, that's that's not very good." You know, like that's a bit. Yeah, that's poor I, CGI. But and and I, and I think that's clearly the selling point of it is that you know. Uh, James Cameron has, has built a world that people like to go back to, hasn't he? Yeah, and I watched Creed 1 and 2 in preparation for Creed 3, and as I finished Creed 2, I think the day after, Jonathan Majors um, was arrested, and I thought, I don't really want to watch Creed 3 now. So That's yeah, it was, yeah it's, a, it's a bit annoying, and yeah. Do, do you want me to do my um, Nick Cage feature? Did we um, come up with a title for that? Um not yet. Um, <laughs> why don't I do the new films that I've done and then we'll do our resolutions. Yeah. So I watched a few new films as well. I went to the cinema to see John Wick Chapter 4. Well, how was it? I really enjoyed it. I mean, are you up to date with all the John Wick films? I think so. I think I've seen number three. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think it matters much. Um, <clears throat> so it's completely unbelievable. But it's always been pretty far-fetched. But I think what's happened is the films have escalated and escalated. If you go back and watch John Wick 1, you go, well, all right, this is preposterous, but it's kind of it's kind of just within a film context, it's just about believable. But now it's like everyone's wearing Kevlar suits, so like they get shot and don't you know, don't necessarily get hit and unless you actually get a proper headshot. Um, it's just so that the fights it's like gun foo, I think it's what they call it, so the fights can go on and be extended. Um, it's gone way, way beyond the original idea. John Wick is basically a superhero now. Um, but, I mean, I enjoyed it. I mean, it didn't feel overlong despite the length. Do you remember we said, how can you do a three-hour John Wick film? But I, 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 never, I was never looking at my watch while I watched it. The action sequences are amazing. The story is completely secondary. I mean, it's so stripped down to the absolute basics, and it's just an excuse for all the action, which is really, really well done. Uh, Donnie Yen is terrific because he's Donnie Yen. He plays a blind hitman. Yes, blind, and he's a hitman. Is he blind again? Yeah. Is he blind in real life? No, he just seems to like playing blind guys. The fuck. Um, um, the, the the absolute scene stealer in the movie is Scott Adkins. Um, you know, you, you, Scott Adkins is that guy you'll recognise. He doesn't do. He, he, he he's like a very he's like budget Jason Statham in his own movies, but he turns up and he's an amazing stunt man and fighter in other people's films, and he completely steals the show. It's really inventive what they do with this character. I don't want to spoil it, but the film. I know he's what, enormous. Yeah, it's absolutely superb watching him in the movie. He is absolutely excellent. Um, in fact, that might be a bit of a breakout for him because, on the whole, he turns up and plays kind of good baddies, and then he does kind of really sort of low budget films, which can be quite enjoyable, like the first ninja film he did. But he's not kind of known for being like much of an actor himself. But he's actually terrific in this. Really bloody excellent. I think this might be a breakout for him. Uh, look, it's a lot of fun. I didn't take it remotely seriously. I'm not a huge John Wick kind of, this is the best thing ever type fan, but I always enjoy watching them. And it was. I'm, I'm glad I went to the cinema to see it on the big screen. Um, I watched a film called Marlowe. Uh, this is a new film just out. It's uh, it's a Philip Marlowe kind of film noir, you know, sort of detective mystery. It's based on a novel by a new writer rather than an original Raymond Chandler story. Chandler's estate commissioned to approve some new books and stories, and this is one of them. Um, it's directed by Neil Jordan, uh, director famously of Mona Lisa and the Crying Game, and Liam Neeson plays Philip Marlowe. Um, this has a very sort of straight to streaming feel, and it was you know it was on streaming, and it, it didn't feel like uh, you know when you have a, a film that's gone straight to streaming and it's. 
you know, even if you don't like The Irishman, um, it's a movie. Do you know what I mean? Scorsese's just done it because those are giving him the money. And To Five Bloods by um, Spike Lee, that would have justified a cinema release. It's just how Netflix paid for it. But there are other straight-to-streaming films where you go, yeah, that wouldn't stand up on the big screen. This is one of those. Um, even though it's got a terrific cast, you know, you know, Liam Neeson, I love Liam Neeson, right? And it's got supporting actors like Jessica Lang, Diane Kruger, Danny Houston, Alan Cumming. Great cast. You know, if I, and I like these kind of films. So it's got, I like the period setting and the old cars and the film noir style. Um, Adewale Akinoye Agbaji is just particularly good as a character who teams up with Marlowe through the story. But it's just really tired. There's absolutely nothing new. It's not up to, you know, when someone tries to do like a, like a new story, but they're not the original writer of the story and it doesn't just doesn't feel the same. That's all it is. Neil Jordan's direction was very disappointing, actually. I was surprised to see how lacking in energy that was. And Liam Neeson's about 20 years too old for the part, fortunately. He would have been terrific if he'd done this film back then. It's it, literally, this film is only for people who are like Philip Marlowe completists, otherwise I would not bother. Um, Philip Marlowe is something that me and my dad big fans of. There was going to be a, a Clive Owen TV show, which I would have absolutely loved. Uh, Robert Mitchum doing it back in the 50s instead of the 70s when he's, he was overage would have been perfect. If you're a Philip Marlowe fan, there was a TV series starring Powers Booth from the 80s, which is the best. This was really quite ho-hum. Um, shame. Apart from that, I watched a film called Bandit. This is based on a true story. This is, uh, I've got the listener message on that. Josh Dumel plays a small time crook who's struggling to make ends meet in Reagan's America back in the 80s when there were no jobs, interest rates were high, everyone was getting screwed over. Um, he gets locked up in America for a minor fraud offence, breaks out of jail, and escapes to Canada to start a new life. But his financial situation is no better on there. He meets a woman and has a kid on the way. So, in order to make enough money to support them, he becomes a bank robber. Uh, he ends up being exceptionally good at it and leads the police a merry dance across the whole of whole of Canada. So it's um, this is really enjoyable. This is kind of the what, what, what bank robber is almost like a bit of a Robin Hood figure. Robin Hood figure, although he's not he's not giving to the poor. He's stealing the money for himself. Um, Josh Duhamel is a bit overage for the character he's playing, but he really pulls it off. You know, uh, you know, in these kind of heist movie characters, when the bank robber is really quite engaging and likable. He actually pulls that off really well. One of the bank tellers says, "Have a good day." After he's finished robbing her, because he's 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 really nice, even though he's robbing you know he's, even though he's robbing the bank. Um, and it's really fun watching him stay one step ahead. It's got a good supporting cast, especially Mel Gibson. He plays the local kind of scary gangster, and his story and relationship with Josh Duhamel is doesn't turn out quite as you'd expect, and that's quite interesting to watch. Uh, the tone of the film is quite interesting. He's sympathetic. The, the story is very sympathetic to the robber because. Like the banks were screwing people over in the eighties, so who cares if they get robbed? Kind of like Dillinger and and Bonnie and Clyde back in the thirties. It's like you know, fuck the banks, you know. Um, but it doesn't also doesn't hide from the fact that he does actually enjoy what he's doing, and he starts to get greedy, and you know, and that's how the story kind of plays out. This is streaming on Amazon, um, but it's definitely better than most kind of streaming service original movies. It's not a classic, but if you like heist films, you'll definitely like this. It's a perfectly decent way to spend a couple of hours. Um, what else did I watch? I've actually watched quite a few new ones this month. Um, Young E, it's called. Uh, it's a Korean straight-to-Netflix film. I don't know if you heard about this. This is from the director of Train to Busan, which got me quite interested. And it's a cyberpunk-ish, futuristic sci-fi action film 
about a global war on dystopian Earth and some lunar colonies, and they're developing a, an artificial intelligence warrior to kind of fight the war for them, based on a real female soldier who died 40 years before. Uh, the leader of the project is the mother of the real soldier that they're basing the AI on, so she has ethical concerns and problems of her own, unresolved issues with her mother who died when she was a child, and it's got the usual themes of like artificial intelligence and the way humans are treated in the dystopian future and all that. So potential to be a good film based on that premise but this wasn't very good um it's a few brief moments of good action but not enough it actually has a lot of talk and sitting around it so maybe it was too limited in its budget for what it was trying to do um all the stories and characterizations a bit sketched in so you don't feel that strongly about what happens it's like yeah whatever and it does drag in several places um you know when you've got a character that doesn't realize it's really a, a robot i mean that's been done so many times including blade runner so you know forget it um, the other new one I watched uh, on streaming was Operation Fortune Ruse de Guerre. This is the latest Guy Ritchie extravaganza. Um, this is kind of in the same territory as when he did Man from Uncle, in that it's a spy team who are all very stylish and you're not supposed to take it all that seriously. Um, it's got a similar retro feel, even though this is set in the present day. Um, it's also trying to be a bit of a Jason Statham vehicle because he has lots of like shoot 'em up action. It concerns a high concept weapon or asset called the handle, which has been stolen and needs to be recovered but no one knows exactly what it is. The billionaire criminal they're trying to infiltrate is a huge fan of a big Hollywood star. So the spy team recruit that actor to accept an invitation to attend the bad guy's party and help them save the day. So the actor gets roped into the, <clears throat> you know, the action against the bad guy. So it's not new at all. I mean, it's Mission Impossible cross of Team America, really. Um, this wasn't all that good either, to be honest. The tone is all over the place. It's trying to be a comedy, and it's got some good comedy people like Aubrey Plaza, sorry, Aubrey Plaza, Hugh Grant, Carrie Elwes, and and Jason Statham was hilarious in Spy, so he can be funny as well. But it's it's not sure how whether it wants to be an action film. It's not sure whether it wants to just focus on like the retro styling, how much of a comedy, how much should it spoof Mission Impossible, how much should it spoof Team America. So it doesn't really settle on a tone throughout the film. It's also got the problem that the actual storyline of recovering the weapon doesn't matter that much. It's just an excuse to kind of put these people together. And that's not a problem, right? Because that's basically every Mission Impossible film. Who gives a fuck about the plot of a Mission Impossible film? It's just an excuse to get Tom Cruise and his team together. The difference is that when that happens, that's really cool. And when this happens, you're like, I'm not engaged enough by the people in the movie. And for a film that doesn't care about the plot, they've packed so much plot into the film, they get bogged down with it because they've got Ukrainian kind of... Uh, sort of heavy, you know, uh, villains that they got to do something about, which apparently delayed the release because they thought that was a bit insensitive at the moment. They've got this kind of, you know, rival team trying to get the handle. They've they've done a, a shit version of Team America where they're getting an actor to be in the story. So they, they've got too much plot for a movie that doesn't care about the plot. So it's kind of, I mean, it, it looks great. I mean, Guy Ritchie has, you know, since Man from Uncle, really, he's really specialised in getting a really lovely, gorgeous look to the film. Um, and there are moments, you know, Aubrey Plaza and Hugh Grant doing their thing is always quite fun, and I don't mind Jason Statham, but it's just not, it's a bit, all a bit half-baked. They've thrown too much into the mix. I get the feeling it's ended up exclusively streaming on Amazon as a bit of a last resort, because it's not worked out. If, this, if, if, this, if they tried to release this in the cinema, I think it would fucking belly flop. So I don't think this has worked out very well. I didn't hate it, but it was all a bit meh, to be honest. Um, and then, hot off the presses, beginning of this week, I went to the cinema to see Renfield. Um, this is the new horror comedy from Universal. I don't know how much you've heard about this, mate. Um, obviously, we've had a wee talk about it because we 
love um, a bit of the Nick Cage, um, but I didn't really have much plans to go and see it. I wasn't impressed by the trailer, but you've obviously yeah. wanted to see it. What did you think? Yeah, I went to see it just to kind of see if it was going to be any good. Um, it's the latest horror comedy from Universal and their latest attempt to create new films and content from their original classic characters. I, I never know with them whether they've totally abandoned that dark universe kind of idea of theirs because they... You know, they tried with the mummy, they tried with the wolf man and all of that. And, and it seems to be, you know, Renfield and, and, and is a character from the original Dracula story. He's the original vampire familiar. Um, and and Dracula is in the story as well. So I don't know if this is Universal still trying to make IP from their old, um, you know, they did the Invisible Man lately as well. But this is, uh, you know, the whole thing is being played, you know, somewhat for laughs. Nicholas Holt plays Renfield. Um you have a little flashback at the beginning to over a hundred years ago when he falls under Dracula's power and becomes his familiar. Over a hundred years later, he's still here serving his master, um, but he's sick of it. Um, he's ill-treated. It's all about his boss's needs, not his, and all of that. Um, the hook here is that he's going to a support group for people in toxic, codependent relationships to try and get out of it. And also, it's he's got supernatural powers because being a familiar in in the, the story within the story gives you you know powers, just strength and um, you know he's you know very difficult to kill. And when he eats these bugs, he gets super strong. Um, Dracula was played by Nicolas Cage, and I like what Nicolas Cage is doing in the movie. He's chewing the scenery and totally batshit right. And there's a few little Nicolas Cage mannerisms like goes, "Let me tell you something, okay," but. He just keeps that under wraps enough to not kind of overdo it. And at the same time, he does all the charming and sinister stuff that that Dracula's supposed to be as well. Um, You know, you're supposed to find it believable that someone would fall into his power, you know? Yeah. So he's very suave and everything. So I like what Nicolas Cage is doing. And I do do like Nicolas Holt's uh, bit as well. He's playing like Renfield. He's... He's obviously done horrible things, and he's capable of you know, like dismembering and destroying like uh, you know so many fights them. But he's quite apologetic about it, and it, that's quite fun. Um, he he's cr- he, so he goes to this support group, and he resolves he's going to get free of of of, of Dracula. Um, at the same time, he get by accident he gets tangled up in the struggle between organised crime and the one good cop in the city, played by Aquafina, Aquafina, who lately was in um, uh, the Ocean's Eight and Shang Chi. And she's quite good as well. Um, he kills a bunch of bad guys uh, in front of Aquafina, so they sort of be, sort of become, you know, you know, get linked up as a result. So now, be, now he has to fight Dracula and a bunch of criminals, and you know there might be a blossoming relationship with him and the cops. So, what did I think of this? It has some terrific moments, right? There's some really, really excellent gory action. Like there's a bit where he's jumping down, and he just rips a guy's arms off, and blood goes everywhere and I laughed out loud in the cinema like, like genuinely really really quite uh, really enjoyed that that those scenes um other than that the direction is is okay it's not scary but I suppose that's all right if it's meant to be a, a more of a comedy than a horror I like the three leads that we talked about Ben Schwartz from Parks and Recreation is in there he's good uh Shora Agdashlu is the leader of the crime family she's also very good but it's not good enough overall and I think the real problem is the script I personally would have preferred it to be a bit more scary, if, you know, because it's a horror comedy, not just a comedy. And that's down to the director a little bit. But the main problem is the script just isn't good enough. They've not worked out the story properly. So there's bits where you go, well, what just happened there? Um, and they don't quite have enough good material, I think. They've got a good premise, but not enough good material. So there's some really good scenes. And then there'll be like three or four scenes where you go, uh, what, what's that? That's not even very good. 
Um, I'm a bit disappointed because the, 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 you can see in the movie that if, if they had more of the stuff I liked in that film, it could have been absolutely excellent. In the end, it was it was okay. I didn't hate it, but it could have been so much better. So that's quite a few films in a month. It's quite a few quite a few new films. None of them totally grabbed me, if I'm completely honest. Um, probably the best of them was John Wick Four, though I, I, I did enjoy that. Good stuff. I also watched House of Gucci again. I forgot. <laughs> how, how, did, how did that stand up second time around? It's a bit shit. Really? Like, do you know what was weird? I actually enjoyed Jared Leto more than this. <laughs> really? See if you watch it from the purely objective, he's playing Mario. Yeah. It's a me, Paolo. And then he pisses on uh, his uncle's uh, signature um, design. I found him quite funny. Uh, I just think... found him an absolute embarrassment. And see if you watch it from the perspective of Ridley Scott's deliberately made Jared Leto's character a disgrace. It's actually <laughs> more enjoyable. Yeah, you see, I think Ridley Scott's got a pretty dry sense of humour that people yeah. don't always get. So, yeah. Okay. But it, the problem is that it got all the attention because everyone loves Gucci and it's this purely materialistic uh, yeah. brand. Um. I just feel like with a story like that and the cast you had, you could have made it a lot more, I don't know what, enigmatic, if mm. that's the right word, just a bit more electric, because it is a mental fucking story. Mm. The same thing happened, well, not the same thing happened, but did Gianni Versace not also get murdered? Yeah. The he, Italians were killing heads of fashion brands. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and they've done a really good American crime story on that, and that that is a wild story, and I, I think that that was a really award-winning show. They really leaned into that. So, if you uh, if you really want to, you can you can make good stories of that. I, I mean, I really enjoyed it first time around, but maybe you know I haven't watched it a second time to see if it still holds up. So maybe I'll have to do that. Um, okay. Any any other any other films you watched lately? No, I just remembered when you were deep into your features, and I went, "Oh fuck!" I watched that the other day as well. All right, no worries. Okay, so other than that, we then um, the the kind of highlight climax, kind of uh, final act of Double Real Monthly every month is always our resolutions. Um, now, your resolution, uh, which we picked up from January onwards, uh, was to do uh, a feature on uh, a, a Nicolas Cage film picked at random. You found this internet randomizer where you almost you push a button and it spits out a Nick Cage film for you to watch. And we still don't have a name for this, do we? Well, I've just gone back into the conversation we had on Messenger, and I think we either pick one or we let the audience pick one. Okay. So, you didn't even message me saying, I've come up with... <laughs> just going back to this. You didn't even message me saying, oh, I've had a few uh, ideas for the, for the title of this. You just messaged me, right, with Cade Rage. <laughs> Quarter past eight on a on a February the twenty first in the in the evening. Cage rage, age of cage, cage and onion. <laughs> I forgot about that one. All the world's a cage. I do like that. Cage, cage against the dying of the light. That was mine. You said coprocagia, cage turner. <laughs> I suggested you've caged horribly. Cage concern. Is that all the ones we had? Caged Heat, Caged Fury, Caged Chaos, Cage of Enlightenment, My Body is a Cage, Cage Against the Machine, Glass Cage of Emotion, Cage Limit, Legal Cage of Consent. <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, we, we did a bit of pride story there, didn't we? Cage sex location, cage of <laughs> extinction. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So I think legal cage of consent might be my favourite one. <laughs> Let's go with legal cage of consent. Why not? Well, I like that one, but also the audience yeah. really liked any of the ones I if that get, I've if, just read out. If we get a nomination for anything better, we'll do that. But for the so, moment, I work the title is legal cage of consent. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what what Nick Cage film did you get spat out you at random? I got month? Lord of War. Oh, interesting. Which is actually quite a good film. I I watched it about a year ago for the first time and thought, yeah, that was all right. I absolutely love the opening monologue or kind of narration from Nick Cage's character. And, you know, have you seen it before? No, I haven't. Oh. I remember you telling me about the opening being really kind of striking. Something to do with an opening shot as well as the narration. Yeah, so I don't want to spoil it, but it basically so shows the kind of different guns and weapons that Nick Cage has sold, but it shows the production of a bullet Yeah, from start to, you know, the metal casing, the gunpowder going in it, through the factory line into a box, all the different people that open these boxes and look at it, and then it shows you being taken to, it looks like somewhere in Africa where there's a civil war going on, and the bullet gets loaded into an AK and filed, and uh, yeah, it's and it shows you like that traditional bullet shot, it's just, it's an amazing opening sequence i think it's brilliant and nick cage is kind of very dry um monotonous narration is just brilliant on top of it the rest of the film can never live up to that opening shot because the opening shot is just so well thought out of it just it's so it's so fucking good um but the rest of the film is still quite good it shows a guy who is you know selling guns to everyone in he doesn't he doesn't fully get into the idea of him wrestling with you know the impact he's having on people it just shows his life kind of falling apart um because um you know i think it's it won't be the fbi it'll be the cia are just on his case tracking him down yeah and yeah it's just a it's a great it's a great film if you've got it's a it's a different film it's not really like a blockbuster it's just like a it's just Nick Cage not Nick Cage not doing his I'm a vampire. It's Nick Cage just playing a guy whose life falls apart because of the the industry he's in. It's a great film. Oh, very good. Well, I'm glad you picked that up. Um, yeah, yeah, I didn't I, get I, fucking ruined by fucking Ghost Rider two. Yeah, and 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 obviously one of our um one of our features in the next episode is a Nick Cage film. So you're getting lots of Nick Cage this month. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's know. yeah. It's uh, it's interesting. That was directed by Andrew Nichol, who's kind of more known for sort of sci-fi stuff. Although he has done a couple of things outside that genre. He's the one who wrote the Truman Show, uh, and wrote and directed Gattaca, which is a film I really love. Um, but uh, yeah, um, it's uh, yeah. I'm glad you like that. It's always uh, it's always good to see. He's doing a. It's an interesting because he just started doing some franchise films at that time. He was doing National Treasure and. And, and 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 Ghost Rider and, and, and a sort of weird stuff in there. So, but he's always his career role is is so varied um, that you'll find him. You know, something really shit is followed by something really genuinely good and interesting. The way he makes his films. So, um, yeah, glad you enjoyed that one. I must watch Lord of War. It, 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 it literally everything you say about it says I should watch it. Um, so I'll have to pick up on that. This isn't a film that I watched or a feature, but I had a dream that Kevin Hart was a serial killer last night. I'd watch that film. And I thought, 
Like, but I mean, like he strangled a hundred and fourteen women to death, kind of serial killer. And I thought, oh man, I really liked him in Jumanji. But <laughs> <laughs> so the movie, the movie's not about him playing a serial killer. The movie would be that he actually is one. No, it was just me sat watching the TV, and the news came on, and it was Kevin Hart is an absolute psychotic murderer. Yeah, that, I suppose that's that, that like that was it. It's like a like your 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 dream subconscious is uh, 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 reacting to the 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 endless celebrity misconduct news. Yeah. Okay. Well, so that's your resolution. Uh, glad it was a good one. Um, my resolution is the slightly less random. Uh, Cronenberg Institute. This is where once a month we visit the Cronenberg Institute, where we go and visit the mind uh, and strange films and interesting world of of the great David Cronenberg. Um, each month I pick up on a film. For the moment, I'm, I'm doing the films of his that I've not seen before. And then at the end of the year, I'm going to do just a couple that uh, I've seen before but really love and just want, wanted to revisit. Um, previously we did is some of his early body horror that, that I'd not picked up on uh, and, and sort of caught up with those we're now, we're now going through a bit of a time jump because I've seen all of his 80s output um, so we're now jumping to 1993 he finishes Naked Lunch which is, uh, which is almost uh, David Cronenberg taking his body horror into new territory more of a sort of you know it's a, it's a literary adaptation that just happens to lend itself to his body horror so he's obviously going off a different direction but this is a huge change for him in 1993 David Cronenberg directed a film called M Butterfly M apostrophe so like Madame you know Butterfly but done the French way and this is based on a stage play it has sort of it's it's sort of linked or inspired or done in the style of the opera Madame Butterfly but even more amazing, once I tell you what the story is about, it is based on real events. Now, what? this story, and Butterfly, based on real events, and it's absolutely insane real events. It's it's very odd that despite what a... So, you know, operas are always kind of really overblown and stylized. Stage plays are also very stylized as well. You've done theatre, you, you know how that is. Um, and this is a crazy story. So it's kind of interesting that what Cronenberg uh, did to this is he did the whole thing as a very kind of sober tone like a serious drama. He's really played this very straight and, and, and sober. Um, and to tell you the story, it's not really a spoiler because you find this find this out so early on, but kind of the, the real events that you find out are just so crazy. So Jeremy Irons plays a French diplomat in Beijing in the 60s who seems reasonably happy in his marriage and everything. Um, but then he meets, uh, and falls in love and becomes obsessed with um, uh, a sort of a, a diva sort of uh, sort of she's this kind of you know, female plays plays all the female part singers in um, in the Beijing opera uh, and you kind of get this kind of look at these western you know men have this kind of real kind of fantasy about these kind of exotic Chinese women and this and this uh, you know this uh, opera singer totally seems to put that and he embarks on this passionate affair with her um but you very quickly realise that actually this um, this singer is a man uh, who's living as a woman. And it doesn't say much in the film, but you kind of think, what, what exactly is going on here? Because he doesn't... He's either aware and just ignoring it or, or not aware because the because she's very clever about the way she does it but the this 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 
gay man living as a woman manages to conceal the fact, even from someone she's having a sexual relationship with, that she's actually, that he's actually a man. Um, but they conduct this passionate affair. Um, I won't tell you all the details of the story, but it is mad some of the stuff that happens. But what's also happening is that either because she's been blackmailed or just because that's how, how things have turned out, um, the the John Lone character who plays the opera singer is also um, working in working for Chinese intelligence and is spying on Jeremy Irons as a foreign diplomat and has managed to get you know is is using him to get information on on French you know and and Western activity in China and that it's absolutely bizarre where the story goes but this is based on real events a real guy actually had this relationship with a man living as a female opera singer. And it's kind of weird because everyone else kind of knew that the, the female parts in the Beijing Opera were sung by men anyway. So it's all a little bit kind of drag. It's not a trans thing. It's about, you know, dressing as a woman. So it's very, very strange. Um, it lives it lives on the fact that the actors playing these parts are really good because Jeremy Irons is always great. He's done, he'd done stuff with David Cronenberg before, um, uh, you know, probably did his best ever performance in Dead Ringers. Um and John Lone, I don't know, have you, have you heard of John Lone or seen any of his films, mate? No. So John Lone is this guy, he's about 70 now, but he was doing stuff in like the 80s. He, his most famous film was The Last Emperor, which won loads of Oscars, and he was, I think he was nominated for a bunch of awards. He's this, he's this perfect looking Chinese leading man guy who's not in nearly enough films. And every film that he's in is just like 10 times better because he's in it. Sometimes quite average films are better because he's in them. Year of the Dragon, which I've talked about. The Shadow, which is dog shit apart from him. And and he's the bad guy in Rush Hour 2. So you might recognise him if you watch Rush Hour oh, 2 again. Oh, what a film. Um, and I rewatch those films a lot, mainly because of him. He's not been in enough films. And he's, he's so good in this as well. But it's so weird. This one's kind of about how the Western psyche has this exotic view of women. It's about a man he's con- he's so obsessed with the idea of this woman that he's in love with, he, he kind of ignores the fact that she's not what she seems in in kind of any respect. Um, and I won't tell you how it plays out. Um, having said all that, as much as I love David Cronenberg and these actors, and I can't complain about. I mean, it looks beautiful. It's beautifully shot. It's well acted and everything. I just think it'd have worked better as a documentary or more in the style of the original stage play. Um, <clears throat> the naturalistic and realistic style that Cronenberg does for the acting, it doesn't really work. There are scenes where you, you see what's happening and you think, because I mean, you did the Scots, you, you, you know, you, you've done theatre and stuff, mate, and you know how they, you don't have special effects. You've only got one set. So you have to kind of do various things that kind of give the audience an impressionistic view and their imagination does the rest. I can see how those scenes would have worked better on stage than in the movie, and they should have maybe done the whole thing more stylized and impressionistic on the screen. Um, so even even though you're watching real events and you read the Wikipedia page and go, "Fuck, that really happened," it just doesn't it doesn't come to life as much as it should. Um, it, it contrasts it, it, it compares poorly to a film that came out around about the same time about Raised the Red Lantern, about a similar character, about a, a gay man living as a living as a woman in China with all the things that come with it. So an interesting film and look, anything with Jeremy Irons and John Lone in it is is it's not wasted time watching them act. They're bloody good and I I'm I, I love John Lone and Jeremy Irons. So that it's great for that. It doesn't entirely work, but it does it's it's an interesting point for uh you know Cronenberg to see he's going off and doing these interesting things and the next thing he goes and does is Crash which was a really shocking film that you know was banned in a number of places so this is the start of Cronenberg going off and doing 
very, very different things. And now my favourite era of his is his body horror era. So it's kind of, that, that'll always be what I want to return to. But this was interesting, if not entirely successful. But as I always do for these things, I always come up with an impromptu top 10 about films which are inspired or linked in some way to the film I just watched. Um, so the impromptu top 10 I've got is cross-dressing in films. Now, I'm going to stay out of any gender identities debates in this because I just don't want to be involved in that bin fire of a, of, of a discussion. So this focuses on films where, for plot reasons, a character disguises themselves as another sex to make people believe they're someone else. And I'm also excluding any films where that would be a spoiler, yeah? So the impromptu top ten of cross-dressing in films is uh, Mulan, Tootsie, Some Like It Hot, Victor Victoria, Mrs. Doubtfire, Yentl, Les Miserables, uh, The Wicked Lady, Sylvia Scarlet, and I Was a Male Warbride. Um, so a bit of a bit of a varied list there. But yeah, a, a, an interesting departure for Cronenberg, uh, the latest uh, visit to the Cronenberg Institute, not as spooky or scary uh, as, as normal, but still really wild and strange in its own way. Um, so that, that's my resolution for this month. Did you have anything else for Double Real Monthly, mate? No, mate, and Virgin keep fucking dropping my connection, so I'm hearing you say things halfway through, man, so I think we should probably wrap this up before so I let, murder Richard Branson. Yeah, so let, let's quit while we're... Just about ahead. <laughs> While it, my internet's alive. That's all for the latest edition of Double Real Monthly. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin McLeod. Next week, we'll be back with our regular features. First up will be our classics and recommended feature, where we finally get round to watching Spike Lee's 25th Hour, then our hidden gem where we tell you why you should get round to watching Ridley Scott's Matchstick Men. In the one that got away, we'll tell you about Elizabeth director Shekhar Kapoor's unrealised project Pani, and in the remake Hate Watch, we look at Dawn of the Dead. We look forward to you joining us then. Look after yourselves in the meantime, see you on the other side. <laughs>